Father, I thank you for, again, the truth of your word. It is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And I'm asking you, Lord, as, as we look into this very serious question, who is Jesus? I ask God for discernment from your scriptures. I pray tonight, may tonight be an equipping night as we search and study and, and dig into your word. I pray, Father, that you would help us see keen insights that perhaps we haven't seen before. And God, that you would privilege us with the opportunity to share these truths with the world, to be able to point them to the Jesus who is both Savior and Lord and fully capable of rescuing us, breaking the chains of bondage, setting us free and allowing us to walk in intimate fellowship with our God and Savior. And I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to us by your spirit tonight. Be our teacher, Spirit of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometime after 325 AD, a gentleman, well, 325 AD, a particular gentleman by the name of Arius uh, came to a, uh, a group, a gathering of bishops in which the main topic of discussion was who is Jesus. Arius had been laying a groundwork of undermining the person of Jesus. He declared that Jesus was a created being, granted the first of God's creation, but he was most certainly not God. If you could attach that title to Jesus, he would say that Jesus was merely a God, if anything. But he denied the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was um, just of a lesser being, and... That then began to send out ripple effects throughout the Roman Empire for those who were Christians. And the bishops gathered together, hammered out what became known as the Nicene Creed, and declared that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. Uh, this, was, this was significant. This was important because it really dealt with who Jesus is. Now, when we're sharing the gospel with people, we need to realize that what's at stake when we're sharing the gospel with people is two things. Number one, the person of Jesus Christ, and number two, the work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he accomplished for our salvation. Now, that Arian doctrine, that, that heresy, did not die out. Uh, actually, Arius was excommunicated and he came back, and um, the Emperor Constantine uh, was going to allow him to be baptized into the church because Arius had kind of crossed his fingers and said, this is what I believe, and he certainly didn't believe it. So Constantine, the emperor, was willing to allow him back in from exile and demanded that the, the bishop baptize him and consequently the Arius was being paraded around town Constantinople and around town and he, he, the people were exalting because they were glad that he, he was back um, the, the bishop who was supposed to baptize him the night before said God please you either need to take his life or you need to take mine but I cannot baptize this, this man. He, he is a heretic. He does not believe the things that he said that he did. He denies the deity of Jesus Christ. 
Please come and rescue me from this hour. The next day, as Arius was being paraded in a chariot around the Constantinople, uh, he, he needed, a time came, he needed to relieve himself. He saw a, an opportunity of a, a building in the back. He got out, he went to that facility, and uh, he apparently was taking his time to the point of embarrassment of his, of his uh, supporters, and they went back there to check on him, and he was on the ground, and his intestines had come out. It was, there was blood everywhere, his intestines had come out. Um, only later, more recently, do people suppose that he was poisoned. And may I suggest to you that the people of his day did not make those suggestions because they knew the poisons of their day and what they could do, and there was no poison out there that would make someone's intestines come out. They, the conclusion that um, Athanasius and his followers who were uh, completely for the Nicene Creed and the, the deity of Jesus Christ, they basically saw this as the judgment of God. Well, let me just say that this Arian heresy has not died out. We see it in, in many cults as it crops up. We see it in the Jehovah's Witness uh, teaching of Jesus. We even see it in liberal theology. Liberal theology denies the deity of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther King Jr., his upbringing was at Crozier Seminary. He was, uh, he was a liberal. He denied. You can read it for yourself. You can even go online and find out what Martin Luther King Jr. believes about who Jesus is. And he says Jesus was divine. And by that, he went on to explain that he was merely a man who attained the highest place closest to God that a man could. But he was a man nevertheless. Christianity was the product of mystery religions and on and on he began to explain. He was a man cut out of the fabric of liberal theology. Liberal theology is prevalent in our day and they deny that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've heard me talk about him, the uh, orthodoxy in which he is a liberal that speaks as a conservative. William Barclay, someone back in the 60s, very prominent. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones declared William Barclay to be the, the most dangerous man on earth. And he went on to explain that it's because even though he said he believed that Jesus from in the Bible was God, and he, D, uh, William Barclay, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they believed that... Uh, that there were two types of history. There was religious history and there was uh, secular history, factual history. Um, you, you don't want to scrutinize the Bible under, hist under hi secular history. Did these things really happen? Because he would go, no, the flood didn't really happen. The creation is explained in Genesis 1 and 2. That didn't really happen. The fall didn't really happen. Jesus' miracles, they didn't really happen. But he would tell you, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, William Barclay, many of the others would say they believed the story. They believed the story, but they don't believe their factual basis. It's kind of like believe the moral principle of a fable. You believe the fable, but you don't ask the question, did it really happen? And we still have very prevalent today in neo-orthodoxy and in liberal theology as these theologies kind of morph and twist and, and meld into other things, a denial of the personhood of Jesus Christ. This is central and it's crucial. And I want to give you six, uh, six reasons why the deity of Jesus Christ is absolutely central because we need to ask the question, what's the big deal? What's really at stake? 
with whether Jesus is God or a created being or a man who attained the highest level of being like God that a man could attain, what really is at stake here? Number one, we need to realize that the atonement itself is at stake. Now, this right here is simply an introduction, but I want you to take notes. We still haven't come to these verses, John 1, 1, 18, etc. But what's at stake? Number one is the atonement. I want you to think about this. If Jesus were merely man or a created being, he would be finite in nature. Let me move on. Our sin is not simply an offense against God, but because God's holiness is infinite, our sin is an infinite offense against his infinite holiness. Do you understand why I'm saying this? Punishment must be brought upon the one who sins. Infinite man committing an infinite, finite man committing an infinite offense must be punished forever and ever. Let me give you a a, a simple illustration here. If I had a container and it had an infinite capacity of, let's say, water, and I were to take that container and pour it into an 8-ounce cup, how many times would I have to pour that container or water into that 8-ounce cup in order to empty this container? Forever. Forever. An infinite number of times. And so consequently, finite man who has committed an infinite offense, and that would be all of us, we must suffer an infinite punishment. So how does God pay, have paid for this infinite offense? Can he do it with a created being? Can he do it with a finite man? He can't. To balance this equation out, if you will, God himself, the infinite being, must become man, infinite man, if you will, in order to satisfy this equation. You must have an infinite container into which you pour the liquid from another infinite container. And the equation is satisfied. How much punishment, then, would need to be rendered upon us? The answer is zero. And so Jesus, the infinite man, suffered yours and my infinite offense. Our infinite offense was placed upon him, and he suffered the infinite punishment of his father and satisfied his wrath, if you will, satisfied this equation so that there is no punishment that comes our way. And for this reason, he declared on the cross, it is finished. So the deity of Jesus Christ... What's at stake here? Number one, the atonement is. Anything or anyone less than God could not suffer and pay for my sins, which are an infinite offense against an infinite holy God. So do you understand what I'm saying there? Number two, the creature can never share in God's infinite glory. And I touched on several passages, Isaiah uh, 43, 11, 42, 8, 45, 5, Jeremiah 10, 6, and 7. Last week, we're not going to do that again. And it basically said, especially in Isaiah 43, that God will not share his glory with anyone. It is his and his alone. He cannot share that glory with anyone. And yet, 
he shares it with Jesus. If we have time, we're going to look at a passage that would speak along these lines in the New Testament. Can you repeat one thing you said? Creature can never Yeah, creature can never share in God's infinite glory. He declares that he cannot. If he could, then that creature would be exalted (laughs) to God's status. Okay? And therefore, angels are not worshipped. Angels are not glorified. God does not share his glory with any angels, with man. He shares it only within the Godhead. Number three, we cannot pray to or worship the creature. That kind of flows from number two. If you were to look at Revelation 5, 12 to 14, you have a myriad of angels and the elders and the four living creatures gathered around the throne and they are worshiping to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise and glory and honor and blessing and dominion and power, etc. And and be unto him. And and God is sharing this glory. And and their Jehovah's Witness friends, they they miss it here because Jesus is truly being worshipped. And they try to deny. As of 1950, they removed the word worship wherever it appears in the English, their English um, New World Translation. Whenever it applies to Jesus, and they, they now translate proskuneo, obeisance, or honor, or a word like that, but not worship. And in that passage of, of Revelation 5, you can't get around it. Jesus is being worshipped with the very same words that the Heavenly Father, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And so Jesus is worshipped. Jesus, we pray to Jesus, John 14. We pray through Jesus and we pray to Jesus. Okay? You do not pray to a creature. You pray only to God. And yet Jesus ascribes worship to himself and he, he allows people to pray to him. Number four, he invites people to fully trust in him. That is something that belongs to God alone. So number four, we cannot fully trust in the creature, but only God. Number five, we would need to conclude if if God created Jesus before the beginning of time, before he created any angels, Jesus was created. You have to ask the question, why did he do that? Why would God the Father create Jesus? He created Jesus because the Father foreknew, he predestined, he called, but it is Jesus who accomplished salvation on the cross. You would have to conclude that God needed Jesus, a creature. Can I ask you this? Does God ever, ever need a creature? Absolutely not. That runs contrary and into the face of of what it means to be God. He is apart from need. He is self-sufficient. But you see, within the Godhead, there is perfect unity, perfect love. And within God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a relationship rooted in love. And it's out of that 
relationship and love that he formed man in need of relationship. Okay? And therefore, in the image of God. Okay. Number, uh, that was number five. Number six, denying the deity or even the humanity. We're going to get into the humanity of Jesus next week. Denying the deity or humanity of Jesus does not come from the spirit of God, but it comes from an antichrist spirit. Let me read to you from, <coughs> from 1 John chapter 4. Number five was God the Father has no need for the creature. He would have no need for Jesus. And yet we certainly see that if you, if you want to call it a need. All right, now in 1 John chapter 4, while you're turning there, I'm going to preface it with this. A man by the name of Serenthus was a part of the church, left the church, spreading heresy. He believed that the Logos, or the Christ, came upon Jesus, and God, in essence, adopted Jesus as his only begotten son. And then the, the, this Logos, or Christ, was God, and left Jesus at the cross. So it technically... God did not die on the cross because he had left him and it was merely the man Jesus. And John was completely set against this. And in essence, it denies that God took on flesh, human flesh. And he says in, in verse one of chapter four, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world, Serenthus being one of them. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ, not just Jesus, but Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That spirit is from God, it says. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Let me put an exclamation mark in what we're saying here concerning the, or rather what's at stake about the deity of Jesus Christ. John tells us that if you deny the deity or the humanity of Jesus Christ, who is speaking from you? It is not the Holy Spirit. It is a spirit. It's not an attitude. Many times people equate spirit with an attitude. This is, he is not talking about an attitude. We know that because on the other side is the Holy Spirit. It's not the holy attitude. It's the Holy Spirit. And it is the Antichrist spirit that spoke through Serenthus, that spoke through Arius, that spoke through these others that I mentioned because they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. This is what's at stake. They speak from another spirit, an antichrist spirit, and not the Holy Spirit. So this is significant. When we are talking with someone who denies the deity of Jesus Christ, they do so under the influence of another spirit, the antichrist spirit. So do you see the significance of this? Now, I want us to look at our first 
passage here, John 1, 1. The question can be rightfully raised, why isn't there a lot, I mean a lot, of teaching about Jesus being God? Why, did, why don't we find that everywhere we turn, that, that just teachings that Jesus is God? May I share with you that we find that teaching everywhere throughout the New Testament, not just in little bits here and there, but we find it in this title that we talked about last week, the Lord. The, the early church knew when Jesus took on that title, the Lord, he was claiming to be Adonai. And only Yahweh took that title upon himself and he shared that title, if you will, with his son Jesus. The father shared it with his son Jesus. And Jesus is Adonai. He is Hakurios in the New Testament, the Lord, Yahweh. We're going to look at some passages a little bit later on, um, specifically that call Jesus Yahweh. But I just want to share with you, there, there are teachings within the New Testament that the author gets into who Jesus is, declaring him to be God, but they don't do it on every page because the title, the Lord, is sufficient to declare Jesus to be God. Now, those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ, they truly do not. If you share this with your Jehovah's Witness friend, they will not see it. And so I'm just going to encourage you that... That this title in itself, we, we could just close our Bibles and we would be done. But there is tremendous amounts of scripture still to be, to, that we can look at that would declare this. Number one, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. <laughs> now, if you look at the New, New World Translation from the Jehovah's Witnesses, they would read it. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The word was with God, and the word was a God. Now we're going to look at another passage in John 10 that they use once they've gotten into John 1, 1. If you don't believe them, then they segue to John 10. We're going to look at that passage next week. Um, but fair enough, and by the way, when, I, when a Jehovah's Witness was witnessing to me, they quoted William Barclay. I thought, man, that is like the wrong person to, to quote for me because William Barclay himself did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. But they, they tout him as a conservative. Okay. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, they will explain to you that there is no definite article in front of God and consequently, you need to supply the indefinite article A. And that would be very fair to do. And let me say that according to Greek grammar, that would be incorrect. You do not need to supply the word A. As a matter of fact, if, you, if they use the definite article in front of God, the, the Greek-speaking person would look at that sentence and say, this makes no sense. And I'm going to explain to you why. Because... We have the word, um, actually, it is God, that's, that's, the, that's a noun, was, I'm going to double on it, underline it, 
uh, as a verb, and then the word. Yeah. You have to, and, and there is no definite article in front of God. In Greek, since, the, since God and word have the same ending, in Greek, Latin, other languages, you decline nouns, okay? When you look at this phrase in the Greek, the, the Greek asks the question, which one is the subject? There's only one way for them to know that it should not be God was the word. In, this is the Greek order here, though. God was the word. How would someone like myself, back there in the time of Jesus, reading this sentence, know which one of these is the subject? We would know it because it has the definite article. When it has the definite article, it's the, it's the subject. It precedes the verb was. Now, this is only with the word is, was, um, and such. Am. So both of these will have the same ending. The only way I know which one is the subject is the one with the definite article. And therefore, you would translate it, the word was God, not the word was a God. You don't need to do that. The word was God. We read later. Now, you're not going to find this if you have a King James Version, unfortunately. But verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Um, this clearly says that God, or that the one and only, or only begotten, the only begotten is God. <clears throat> The only one who has seen God is God, the only begotten. That's what it's saying. Now, the King, the King James does not have it because of the manuscripts that it relies on through the Textus Receptus. That's unfortunate. The oldest manuscripts have it worded this way. It's the most reliable. There's a number of them. And so when someone is doing due diligence to find out, okay, which, which text... How do we train? Which which text is the the most accurate? Then the NIV follows that line, and the evidence is vast and sufficient. And you don't just look at the text; you also look at the early church fathers when you're doing um, textual criticism like this. You you look at the early church fathers, and when they quoted scripture, how did they quote it? And there is a plethora of evidence that says God, the only begotten. And so that would be another verse that we could share with the Jehovah's Witness friend of ours. John 20, 28. I'm not going to read this. I'm going to refer to it. John, uh, Thomas was not present when Jesus first rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples in the upper room. And he, Jesus now appears a week later Thomas is there, and Jesus appears to him, and he says, Thomas, stop doubting. Here, feel the nail scars in my hands. Thrust your hand in my side and believe. And Thomas' immediate response, it says, And speaking to Jesus, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. He did not say, and speaking to Jesus, he said, My Lord, and then looking upwards, he said, My God. Or he wasn't just saying, my Lord and my God. 
as if it was some exclamation mark just referring to, to God up in the heavens. He was speaking to Jesus and in referring to Jesus said to Jesus about Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my God. He said it this way, my Lord and my God. And he fell at his knees and he refused to put his hands in Jesus', in Jesus hands and in his side. And then Je- I mean, Jesus did not turn around and say, Thomas, oh, don't you realize that declaring my deity, that's why I got crucified in the first place. Come on, if, if you guys could just get it right. Oh, you have little faith. And he didn't go that route. He commended him and he said, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And he, he commends Thomas for his declaration, but even greater commends those who say the same thing but have not seen Jesus. So Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus does not scold him. Jesus doesn't say, man, when are you going to get it right? He accepted that. My Lord and my God. It's not my Lord and my A-God, okay? No, my Lord and my God. Jesus is his Lord and his God. John 5, 16 to 18. Um, we're going to have time to, to look at this passage. This is, um, it'd be nice if we could really dig into this, um, this particular passage. Awesome, awesome passage. Jesus heals the man by the pool of Bethesda, and he does so on the Sabbath. Now, I'm not going to get into the healing, but the Jews have a problem with this. And this isn't the first time they caught Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Now, let me say this. Healings, in all fairness to the Jews, healings are recreations. I want you to think about that. Healings are recreations. Or, put another way, healings are creations. Just not exactly like the creation in in creation week. On the Sabbath... What did God, on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested from creating. And so in all fairness, the Jews have a problem with Jesus healing on the Sabbath. But they really miss the big picture here that Jesus addresses in, like, in Matthew chapter 12. But we're actually, um, yes, I'm going to get to that when touching on this verse. So Jesus, or or the Jews, are upset with Jesus. And it says here in chapter 5, verse 16, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. There is a Greek word, it's called a post-positive. It doesn't happen in the very beginning of a Greek sentence. It purposefully is placed second, but it's translated first, if at all. The NIV chooses not to translate this word. It's the word deck. The word deck can be translated either and or but. And what it does is it helps link one verse, if you will, or phrase to the next. Some of your translations, mine just says, Jesus said to them. Some of yours say, but Jesus said to them. Jesus, what he is saying here is in direct response to their accusation that he is breaking the Sabbath. How, what does he say to them? Does he say something like, let me teach you about the Sabbath? Does he say, well, technically, 
I'm not breaking the Sabbath. What does he say? You know what, guys? You're right. I am breaking the Sabbath by working. But guess what? My father is working today, and so am I. Now, in Matthew 12, Jesus goes on and he explains further, because even though someone like David ate of the consecrated bread, he was still held innocent. Because doing good to a man is held above the ceremonial law. Okay? That's important. That's significant. Obedience is better than sacrifice, Samuel said to King Saul. Jesus in Matthew 12 therefore says the Sabbath is not, excuse me, man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And then he goes on to make this declaration and he says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, is Lord of the... I want to I pause right there. I'm going to come back to the Sabbath. I want to pause right there. Who gave the command to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy? Yahweh. Who gave that command? God. God. God, Yahweh did. Absolutely. <laughs> Here comes a man, Jesus, and he says, guess what, guys? I... Am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the master of the Sabbath. I am the boss of the Sabbath. So here is here is the authority level, if you will, of God's word. And part of that word found in the Ten Commandments says to keep the Sabbath holy. Jesus says, guess what, guys? I am above that. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am over that command of God. What is Jesus saying? Help me out here. What is he saying? What's he imp- clearly implying? He's on the same level as God. Yeah, he's God. Okay. Man, absolutely. He, the only one who can be above God's word is God himself. Because God's word flows from God. There is no authority higher than God's word. God's word flows from his authority. Jesus is very clearly stating with that declaration, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is God. Because only God can have that place of being Lord of his word. Okay. So, it says here in verse 18, For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath... And may I say, he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was innocent. He was, if you will, desecrating that which God had called holy. But then the Father does this as well, because the greater good is what they are working, is what they are doing, and they do it every day. Now, do you understand what I'm seeing? This does not make Jesus a, a, a sinner by breaking the Sabbath, because... He goes on to say that if, a, if an oxen falls into a hole and you help it out, technically you're breaking the Sabbath, but there is a higher law at work here. There is a higher law above the ceremonial law, that's the moral law, and that is you have a responsibility, not, not only because it's yours, but because, maybe it's someone else's, but because you need to show kindness to this animal and help him out. So Jesus is, he doesn't defend himself here except simply to say, Guess what? The Father is always working, and I am always working. 
Now, here's the reason why I am emphasizing that Jesus, in this way, now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Jesus sinned. Jesus broke the Sabbath, technically, but so did David, so does anyone who helps an animal out of a pit, but they are innocent. The Jehovah's Witness will look at this passage and they will say, so you're trying to tell me that Jesus broke the Sabbath? That makes him a sinner? These are simply false accusations. It's a false accusation that Jesus broke the Sabbath and it's a false accusation that he was making himself equal with God. So once they get rid of that accusation, Jesus breaking the Sabbath, it opens the door for them to say that he was, he was, it's also a false accusation to say that he was making himself equal with God. And he was not. He was making himself equal with God. May I, may I add a little addendum onto that, however. In nature, Jesus was equal with God. This is what Philippians 2.5 tells us. Being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be held onto because he was equal with God. He released that and he emptied himself. Okay? So Jesus is equal in essence with God because he is God. However, he is not equal to the Father with regard to authority. There is a hierarchy. Jesus is the head of man and God, that is God the Father, is the head of Christ. This concept of Kephale is authority. And it does not necessarily mean greater or, or superior or greater in uh, value or anything like this. I'm called to be the head of my wife in my home. I'm not superior to my wife. There's many ways in which my wife is superior to me, and I'll be quick to acknowledge that. But I am a human being just as my wife is a human being and because I'm her head does not make her inferior to me in value. So by Jesus saying that the Father is greater than I in with regard to authority does not make, the, not make him less in value or essence or if you will, substance than the Father. He's just simply saying he is greater than I with regard to authority. The Father sent the Son. Okay. All right. I have a question. Yes. Where, where do the Jehovah's Witnesses get the, the basis for their assertion that uh, Jesus did not perform any miracles on the Sabbath or do anything like this? Well, they would say that he did miracles on the Sabbath, but doing miracles on the Sabbath is not work. Oh, and I would contend, yes, it is. It is work. All right. <laughs> and so that that's where that's. That's how they would explain it away. Jesus wasn't really working. He was healing. That's different. The Jews, Jews got their theology mixed up, so Jesus was not technically so breaking the Sabbath. The, the Pharisees were, were wrong in their assertion that he was working. Correct. Okay. All right. But then he goes on to say that, yes, I am working. You're right. I am working on the Sabbath, doing the greater good. But guess what? So is the Father. So I'm going to feel real comfortable here. Now, I, I want us to see something um, because Jesus, it's the, again, there's another Greek word that is missing here, starting with verse 19. And in verse 19, the word therefore is in the Greek. It actually says, therefore, Jesus gave them this answer. The reason why I'm stressing that is Jesus' answer is in response to these two accusations. Okay, 
He addresses both of these accusations in this next paragraph, which would be verses 19 through 23. It says this, Jesus gave them this answer, or therefore (laughs) Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do whatever the father, excuse me, he can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Therefore, if the father is always working, guess what the son is going to do? He's going to always be working. He goes on, verse 29, excuse me, verse 20, I'm sorry. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. This is the type of relationship the father and son have. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Now he's beginning to segue into this idea, because he called him my father, he is making himself equal with God. Look what Jesus, look what Jesus says here. The father gave the son, referring to himself, life. So as the Father gives life and can raise the dead, so God the Father has shared that glory with the Son and given him life so that he can raise the dead and give life to whomever he wishes. Now, it's not just raising the dead because they're physically dead and they come back to life, but he talks about that he is going to raise all believers in him in the last day. So the first thing he says is, guess what? The Father has shared this glory of raising the dead with the Son, and I do it to whomever I want. He goes on to say this also. Moreover, the Father judges no one. He has entrusted all judgment to the Son. The Father now shares this glory of judgment with the Son, and judgment also, Jesus comes, I'm not going to read it, but later, uh, verses 28 through Uh, 30, Jesus is shown to be the judge. He says, the father's judge is no one. Uh, I I lost my place here. Uh, But has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Look at that. Look at that. He gives life and he gives judgment to the Son and shares this glory with the Son so that everyone who honors the Father will just as they honor the Father, honor the Son. The glory that we give to the Father, we give to the Son. Why? Because God has shared this with the Son. Because because Jesus is God. Um. So he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is very clearly saying here, you know what, guys? You got it right. You got it right. I am doing just as my Father. He's working now, and so am I. And you also got it right that I am declaring myself equal with God because the Father has shared with me both life and judgment, and you are required to honor me exactly as you honor the Father. So he does address that. Okay? So we're beginning to see something of of serious significance um, unfold here with regard to who Jesus is. And that was the question that he asked his disciples. Who do men say that I am? Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're another one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. Remember, who, who can say Jesus is Lord but one who's speaking by the Holy Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Father says, that's right, because the Father has revealed that to you. Um, so th- this is crucial. Jesus, is, John is, de- is sharing with us that Jesus right here is declaring himself to be equal with the Father. All right. Let's look at 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Oh, I'm realizing I need to book it very quickly. Um, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Now, I hope you're taking good notes because I think you're going to find these, all of these scripture passages. And there are more, by the way, church. There are more. We could talk about the, the character qualities that Jesus possesses. And, and, yeah, we are going to be talking about that next week, Jesus' attributes. We could talk about a number of other verses. But these are excellent to be able to share with a Jehovah's Witness friend or anyone who would deny the deity of Christ. Embrace the scriptures, but deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Second Peter 2, excuse me, Second Peter 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. It says right here, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, some translations say of our God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, trying to treat them as two separate people. There's God, and then there's Jesus. The problem, though, is that there is one definite article here. It comes before God, and God, Savior, Jesus, and Christ all have the same Greek ending. They all modify one another, There are not two definite articles. If you were to skip down to verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There are two definite articles there, and therefore there are two people that he is referring to. Just not in verse 1. God and Savior modified Jesus Christ in verse 1. Our God and Savior. Not two people, one one person. Jesus, who is both God and Savior. Okay? One definite article. In verse 2, he uses two definite articles and therefore is referring to God the Father and God the Son. All right? John 8, 58. Any questions at this point? On these passages, any questions? Okay. It's yes. What's the Greek for that? The Greek is proskuneo. Let me write it up here. Where we get the word Proskuneo. 
It means to lay prostrate before or bow. And so many times, and it is translated that way in the New Testament, but it also means to worship. And so the New World Translation from the Jehovah's Witnesses will take this word and whenever it's used to refer to Jesus, will translate it bow down or honor or do obeisance. Um, but they won't translate it worship because worship is to be given only to God. That's the first and second commandment. Thank you. Rachel? Um, so can you explain um, the Greek? Are there in depth, or definite and indefinite articles again? And like the endings the same? I don't know if I quite got it. With regard to which? John 1 1 or. Oh, or right here in 2 Peter 1. I guess either one because you're. Okay. Yes, okay. Um, just like in Spanish, if you were to give an adjective and a noun together, the adjective and the noun have the same ending. If it's a masculine noun, it takes a masculine adjective. That's the way it is in Greek. And so if you have the word the, uh, which would be unlike Spanish, but the word the modifies the noun, the word. It would be ha in the nominative, logos in the nominative. Okay, so it takes the same ending, is all I'm saying there. There The definite article is the word the. The indefinite article is the word a. Definite because it's referring to one specific one, okay? The man. Not just a man, could be any, but the man, for example. There is one definite article here, in, in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, and that, that sets up this phrase, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's inaccurate to translate it, our God and our Savior, because there's only one um, our in that phrase. And it, it's, it's in the beginning, and though it carries over to Savior, in English, we don't translate it our God and our Savior because that gives the impression that we're talking about two different people. But our God and Savior, they all have the same ending. There's only one definite article. There's only one word, our, and therefore they modify Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying that Jesus Christ is God, our God and Savior. In verse 2, there are two definite articles and two hours, and so he translates it, uh, our God and our Savior, or, or our Lord. I, I'm, I don't have the text in front of me now. And so he's ref- there he is, there's two definite articles, two hours, and so consequently it's two different people, God the Father and God the Son. All right, or the Son. All right. Did, yeah, under- that. Okay. Now we come to John chapter 8, and Jesus is referring to Abraham, and he says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. He prophetically saw it. They go into, you are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Whoa, whoa, wait, let me tell you more. Jesus goes on. 
He says, I tell you the truth. That's my translation of I tell you the truth. Let me say. Let me tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham. Wait, 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 wait. Man, Jesus. He, he really did not do too well in, in his grammar classes growing up. Jesus. Back the truck up. What you meant to say was, before Abraham was born, I was. Right? Before Abraham was born, I was. Meaning, I was born before Abraham. That would really get him into some trouble with regard to the, these, the, the Jews here. Because that would only emphasize the fact that you're not even 50 years old and you're trying to say you were born before Abraham. I don't think so. And so he doesn't want to say that he was born before Abraham. He doesn't even use the word born. He says, before Abraham was born, I was? I am. Why would he say I am? Because it's for all eternity. Okay. He's the all-existing one. Okay. That's the way God addresses himself in the Old Testament. And how is that? Yeah, I am. The I am. That's the way, that's, I think that's the way he, the first instance of him actually saying who he is. Yes. In Exodus 3, he declares himself to be the I am. In the Greek, it's ego me. And so Jesus is taking, is taking this I am, and he is inserting it here, if, if I can word it that way, and it's really awkward. Before Abraham was born, I am. Come on, get your grammar right. Or maybe he's trying to say something here and he wants us to feel the awkwardness of it because he's saying before Abraham was, I want you to know I have always existed. Whoa. Before Abraham was born, I always am. I am the all-existing one. I am Yahweh. And that's truly, he's taking on that title of the I am. Now, skip over to chapter 18. We see this play out in a, in a slightly different way. A, a group of a detachment of soldiers and officials, chief priests, etc., or from the, a detachment from them of soldiers have come to Jesus. They're carrying, what, torches, lanterns, weapons. Um, and Jesus, knowing was, what was going to happen to him, he initiates. He doesn't wait for them. He initiates and says, who is it you want? Because Jesus knows exactly what he is going to do. And he's going to display something here absolutely awesome. So he initiates, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And his response in the Greek is, ego me. Now in all fairness, when you read that in the Greek, you can supply he, I am he. And so my, my version does that. In all fairness, you can do that. But Jesus is trying to say more than just simply, yeah, I'm he. We know this because John brings us, brings our attention 
to what happens. It says parenthetically, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, ego a me, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Number one, why did they draw back? If you're not a Christian, how are you going to explain this? If you're a Jehovah's Witness, how do you explain this? Jesus startled them. You know, and kind of like a domino effect. They, they stumble backwards and trip over this huge root system. After all, they're in the, the uh, a grove of olive trees. And so they stumble over the roots and they fall to the ground. But is that anything what John is trying to imply here? No. 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 They're not caught by surprise. It says they drew back. Something causes them to withdraw. And it says, and they they fell to the ground. Jesus is declaring himself Yahweh here. And there is power and authority in that title. Now, you can stand on a street corner and say, I am, all day, and nothing's going to happen, except maybe a lightning bolt. (laughs) But, and it's because you are not the I am. But Jesus declaring himself, because he is the I am, that he is the I am, that is a powerful, declarative, truthful statement. And as he says it here, and it says Judas was there. Judas sees this happening. And they, so Jesus says, who you're asking? Jesus of Nazareth, I told you I'm he. Peter, or, or excuse me, Judas has betrayed, or Judas betrays him with a kiss in, in light of all of this. They still arrest him even though he was revealed his very glory as Yahweh himself. Um, I, I, I need to move on here. Is I want to... Is cross used in there at all when they fall to the ground? No, they don't. Okay. No. <laughs> no. Be, because I, I would put it this way, they were slain in the spirit. That's, that's kind of a typical phrase that's used in our day. But the power and the presence of God is so strongly manifested their strength leaves them and they fall to the ground, okay? And, and you see that happen numerous times in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, in which the very presence of the glory of God causes them to fall down. Now, I, I need to move on, and I want you to turn now to the left, John chapter 12. There are a minimum of, I mentioned this last week, I believe, a minimum of 12 New Testament passages that quote an Old Testament passage. And the Old Testament passage talks about Yahweh, and then when quoted in the New, it's applied to Jesus. And and I brought this up talking about the title, The Lord, because that title again reveals who Jesus truly is. And we looked at Romans 10, so we're not going to do that, though it's listed here for you. Um, Number, what is it? Uh, Number 12. Is it number 12 for you? What is it? It's 12. It is 12, okay. Because I edited this later. Anyways, I want us to look at John 12. 
In John 12, twice he quotes from Isaiah. People are not believing in him. He does miracles. They still don't believe in him. So he quotes from Isaiah. And then in verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they, so they can neither see the... So they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Now, I don't want to get into uh, interpreting that passage, what it means, etc. Because my focus is more the Isaiah passage and verse 41 here. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now, Jehovah's Witness friends would say, wait a second, the word Jesus is not in the Greek there. It literally reads, he saw his glory and spoke about him. My question is, who is him then? Look at your context. Look at the next verse, in fact. Who is him? The very one that they didn't want to believe in. They're not, it's not, John isn't trying to tell us they weren't wanting to believe in God the Father. They weren't wanting to believe in Jesus. That's what it says here in verse 37. They, doing miracles, they still would not believe in him, Jesus. Not the Father, Jesus. And so the NIV rightfully inserts the name Jesus here so that you can understand it. So that it's right to say Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. If he saw his glory and spoke it, there, there's a lot of he's and his, and it can get confusing. So the NIV supplies Jesus, rightfully so. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. It says, Isaiah said this. What is this? Look at the passage there. What is this? Isaiah said this. Okay, the very verse that he just quoted, Isaiah said what was just quoted because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Who did Isaiah speak about? (coughs) Him who is Jesus. Okay, now the reason why I'm emphasizing this is that... he, he didn't see the Father's glory and speak about the Father. He saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about Jesus. And as a result, he shares what's quoted in verse 40. Where do we find this quotation? Verse 40. Where is it found in the Old Testament? Hint, it's in Isaiah. <laughs> That's the first quote. Chapter 6. So let's do this. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6. The question we need to ask before we read this is who does Isaiah see? In the year that King Uzziah, are you there in Isaiah 6? Okay, Isaiah 6 follows Isaiah 5, just so that, yeah. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Ha-Adonai, seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's a vision of of Ha-Adonai in the temple. So who does does Isaiah see? The Lord, Ha-Adonai. Where is the Lord? In the temple. This is a vision, no doubt. I I don't know if Isaiah is in the temple there. 
um, but he sees a vision, and it may be it may be not just the Lord. Anyways, he sees the Lord Adonai in the temple. Let's go on. It says above him in this temple vision above the Lord were seraphs, each with six wings. Two wings covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, with two wings they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, curious, why are they singing about Yahweh Almighty? Could it be because this is who Isaiah sees? Ha'adonai. Good, fair enough question let's move on at the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke woe to me i cried so this is isaiah having seen this vision his response to this vision is woe to me i am ruined for i am a man of unclean lips i live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king yahweh almighty who does isaiah see He sees Yahweh Almighty. John tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus. Is there some sort of contradiction here? What's your conclusion? Yahweh Almighty is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh Almighty. Pastor Mike, does it say Yahweh Almighty in NIV? Well, it translates it Lord. But I'm saying, that yes, because it's all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, that's Yahweh. That's the covenantal name Yahweh. So whenever you come across capital L, small O-R-D, that's Adonai. Whenever you come across all caps, L-O-R-D, that's the covenantal name Yahweh. And that's what's used here, Yahweh Almighty. Okay, any questions on that particular text there? All right. Um, how, how, how you, I'm trying to figure out how there's an assumption that there, he's not just talking about God himself and that there's Jesus in, is in there. I'm not seeing that. How, how can I see that? If you just go with Isaiah 6, right. answer this question. Who does Isaiah see? Yeah. He says... He says The angels. Right. But the, okay. he says, I saw the Lord, and it's not in capitals. Okay. That's a, that's a 6 1. Okay. He sees the Lord. The Lord is the focus here. His train fills the temple. The angels are worshiping. Holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. Is he referring to someone else? He's referring to the one whose train fills the temple. Because Isaiah says, I'm ruined, for I have, my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh Almighty. <coughs> the Lord whose train fills the temple is Yahweh Almighty. He is the king. Isaiah sees him, and he is filled with fear. I am ruined. An unholy man in the presence of an all-holy God. And then the, it goes on to talk about how the angel takes a coal and purses it against his lips to purify him, his, his speech that is, 
This is Isaiah's commissioning, and then who will... The people need to know who will go for me, and Isaiah says, send me. So this is... Okay. So what does it say in verse 41? Whose glory does Isaiah see? According to Isaiah 6, whose glory does Isaiah see? Yahweh Almighty. That's what Isaiah sees. He sees the glory of Yahweh Almighty. He doesn't see the glory of the angels. It's just Yahweh Almighty and the angels. And it's not the angels that he's overcome by. He's saying, I am ruined because he has beheld the glory. God's glory will fill the earth. He's beholding, he's right there, and he's beholding the glory of the king, Yahweh Almighty. However, John tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Now, he doesn't say Yahweh Almighty's glory. So what we need to do is we need to take those texts and wed them. Isaiah says he saw the glory of Yahweh Almighty. John says he saw the glory of Jesus. So who is Jesus? He is Yahweh Almighty. Okay? Mike, I think it's, I think it's probably confusing that we didn't read the entire Isaiah 6, which the actual prophecy is word for word. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. Yes. That is that passage that's quoted in John 12 is quoted here in verse 9. All right. Uh, 10, excuse me. Isaiah 6 10 is the passage when it says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. This is referring to Isaiah 6.10. That's why I'm having us turn to Isaiah 6. Because I, Isaiah, um, Isaiah is quoting from the Lord here in Isaiah 6. And in that scene, Isaiah beholds the glory of Yahweh Almighty. And in beholding the glory of Yahweh Almighty, God says this, okay? So it's not a direct translation, is it? I'm not sure. From direct. 6, 10 to John 40. From Isaiah, Isaiah 6. One is in Hebrew and one is in Greek. Right. Okay. And it may, I didn't check this out, but John may well be quoting from the Septuagint. Right. And not the, yeah, the Hebrew the, text. The, the meaning is the same, but the words are, it's yeah. explained differently. But it is from Isaiah. And it is from chapter 6, verse 10. Right. Not from any other portion in Isaiah. So when the Hebrew scholar goes back to Isaiah 6, asking the question, well, who did Isaiah see? His answer is he saw Yahweh. Yahweh Almighty. He saw his glory to the point where he said, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. But John says, back the truck up. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Okay? I hope I... That was good. And thank you for helping me clarify that. And you as well, Bruno. Okay. Um, wow. Well. Juliana? This will be really quick. 
verse 41 says, these things Isaiah said, which to me would be both quotes from Isaiah, and the first quote is from Isaiah 53, which also mentions Yahweh. Okay. So, Okay. I am going to skip Hebrews 1.10, but if you were to go to Psalm 102, Hebrews 1.10-12, quotes from Psalm 102. If you were to go to Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. I want to help you find who this you is. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth. Because the author of Hebrews says that this is in reference to the sun. You is the sun. Okay. Well, so here's what we're going to need to do. We're going to need to trace this pronoun, second person singular pronoun, you, back to find out who he is referring to, who is you. Hebrews, right, author of Hebrews says it's Jesus, the son. Let's go back to verse 24. So I said, do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth. So who is you, according to verse 24? My God. God. So do you see that? But I don't want you to be satisfied with that. Jehovah's Witness would say, no, 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 he probably means, oh my, a God. No, 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 no. Let's go back to verse 22, excuse me, 23. In the course of my life, he broke my strength, he cut short my days, so I said, do not take away, do not take me away, oh my God. He, in both, he, in, uh, he broke and he cut short my days refers to, oh my God. Okay, we need to go back one more verse to find out who he's talking about. I'm actually going to go back too, so it flows better. So the name of Yahweh will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship Yahweh. In the course of my life, he broke my strength. Who is he? Yahweh. Yahweh. And so as, as you do that, as you, you're sharing with the Jehovah's Witness friends, you trace these pronouns and my God back to he, and then finally in verse 22, it is Yahweh. You, in verse 25, that refers to the son, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says that's the son. When you go back to the text, it's Yahweh. I want to conclude with this. Ephesians 4. And I'm going to... Yeah, I shouldn't go over, but maybe a minute or two. Ephesians. Ephesians 4. This is talking about Jesus dispensing his grace gifts to men. It's he 
who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastor, uh, evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. That's verse 11. He is referring to Jesus. Let's, let's back it up a little bit to verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Who gave the gifts? Christ. Christ, thank you. Did the Father, according to this verse, give the gifts? Not according to the, this verse, Christ did. Okay, fair enough. This is why it says. Why does he say this is why it says? And then give a quote. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't say anything that the Lord doesn't give him. He only speaks from the Lord. Okay, fair enough. But that phrase, this is why it says, Bruno? To give substantiation. To substantiate it. I'm not just going to tell you this. I'm going to give you proof from the Old Testament that what I'm saying is true. And what's the truth? That Christ gives gifts. Okay? So let me show that with you. We can even see it in the Old Testament. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Who is he? He ascended. Jesus. It's Jesus. As a matter of fact, in verse 9, it says, what does he ascended mean, except he also descended to the lower earthly regions? This is Jesus. Let's go back to Psalm 68. Paul is telling us very clearly this passage, he refers to Jesus. Psalm 68. It, 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 because it is so very clear that Jesus is God. But it, it, I also want you to understand, though, before we look at this, don't, don't be lifted up in pride when you speak with a Jehovah's Witness friend like you've got your guns blazing. Like there's so many scripture verses, you idiot. Why don't you see them? This is what they're struggling, and I get it. How can, how can the infinite God become finite flesh? You would think as soon as that happens, he ceases to be God. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, it makes sense to me. I get it. But he didn't give up his deity when he took on human flesh. How could he save us? How could he save us? Exactly. What's at stake here? Number one, the atonement. Right? Yes. Jesus had to be God to save us. To be the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. So, uh, Psalm 68, verse 18. When you ascended on high, so instead of he, Paul is taking some liberties here, and he's saying, instead of you, he is translating it he. Okay. Anyway, when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men. And let me just pause right there. You received gifts from men. Because of how the Hebrew is worded, it can also be translated, though not as frequently, it can be translated, not that you received gifts, but you gave gifts. Okay. 
because of the preposition that's used here in the, in the Hebrew. And so Paul takes that and he himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does that, but applies this to Jesus. And so this truly is the verse that's quoted in Ephesians 4. And he says, even, f- let, let me back up. I ruined it. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men or gave gifts to men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Yahweh Elohim, might dwell there. Who is you in this passage? Yahweh Elohim, the Jehovah God. But John just told us that you or he was Jesus. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Paul did. Who did I say? John. John. I'm stuck on John. (laughs) Paul, an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving us keen insight into this particular passage, says, yep, this Yahweh Elohim, this Jehovah God, that's Jesus. Hmm. Um, I've pretty much covered those last two there. Um, I I want us to again revisit what's truly at stake here. Did anybody have a comment, by the way, before I conclude? (laughs) Rachel? I have a question. You might not have time to um, answer it now, but I'm struggling with it. Okay. I do believe that Jesus is Yahweh. Um, But did he have the spirit of God before God placed this, the Father God placed the spirit of God on him? You know, when he got baptized, like, the spirit, like, did he have the spirit of God before that? Mm -hmm. Because he was fully God? The spirit of God certainly would have been with him, but let's understand that Jesus is not the spirit. Okay? Okay. All right. Jesus is not the Spirit. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Was the Holy Spirit with him? Sure. But he was, when a prophet, a priest, a king, when they are commissioned into their service, they are anointed many times with oil, in this case with Jesus' baptism with water. And he was anointed by the Holy Spirit at that point. Now, Is it that he suddenly received the Spirit without limit because he didn't have it before? I'm not sure I can answer that question because the the text doesn't get into that. I mean, how can God, how can Jesus not have had the Holy Spirit without measure? How could he not have had it before his baptism? I mean, he's God. And I understand the dilemma here, but... I, I think, again, in all fairness, we have to realize that, that just that God would take on human flesh. It's not that Jesus' spirit was God and his flesh was man. That's a dichotomy there, and that, that's not a biblical concept. That, that's actually a, a heresy that the early church dismissed. No, don't, don't try and slice and dice Jesus this way. He was fully God, and he was fully man. And so, when you get into, well, how much of the Spirit did he have before the anointing and how much after, 
Because the next question is then what does him, him being anointed by the Spirit really mean? We do have the answer to that second question, though. What it means is that he would, by that anointing, he chose to rely on that anointing to do miracles. The question is, could he have relied on just simply being the Son of God to do miracles? I would have to say, I'm sure that he could have, but the Bible never answers that question. He chose to lay aside his glory I don't understand all of the implications of that. Come his baptism, he is anointed by the Spirit without limit, and he chooses to rely on that anointing to do all of these miracles that he did. That is what, in Luke 4, when he quotes from Isaiah 61, the, sovereign, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, too. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do certain things. Heal, proclaim the gospel, set captives free. For some reason, in the sovereign plan of Yahweh, they had decided, if I can even say it that way, they decided that Jesus in his earthly ministry would not rely upon him simply being the Son of God, but that he was to be anointed by the Holy Spirit and rely on that anointing to do all of his miracles and to preach. I don't know why God chose to do that, but he did. But I tell you what, this, this is what then ministers to me. The very spirit by which Jesus did all of those miracles and proclaimed the gospel is the very same spirit that I have right now. Does that not cause you to step back in awe and say, wow. And for that reason, he says, the very miracles that I do, you will do and more. Not necessarily one individual, but in totality, the church, you will do far more miracles than what I will do because we have the same anointing, not the same degree, but the same anointing, the same Holy Spirit that Jesus chose to rely on to do all these miracles and set captives free. So, to really answer your questions, I have no question, I have no clue. Okay. Except, this is what Jesus chose to do, to rely on that anointing of the Spirit to do all of these things. Nicodemus, right? So if he, if that's what he's telling people, surely he has to go through that as well because he's still a man. He has to have a baptism himself. Oh, okay. All right. In order for him. You're referring to a man must be born of water in the spirit? Right. Okay. And, and the question is, what does it mean to be born of water? And there is some debate, but... Um, and I don't want to get into that right now. But um, Jesus was baptized with water to fulfill all righteousness because he was paving the way for us. He was anointed by the Spirit, baptized with water, because that's what we are asked to do. Be baptized with water. And when we get into the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, uh, what is his ministry... And then his empowerment that we're going to, we'll, we'll look at that more in depth there. Does somebody else have a question? Okay. Uh, no, I just wanted to uh, mention, um, we're talking about him being baptized later on and preaching, but he was preaching when he was 12 in the temple. So, in all fairness to that, Jesus was really asking questions. 
And I imagine that there was some answering of questions. I'm not sure. By his knowledge, so perhaps he yes. was talking. He was just right, exactly. Okay. Because when Jesus started his ministry at age thirty, that's when he began to proclaim the gospel and said, "The kingdom of God is at hand." Okay. Okay. And that's when people started placing their faith in him, and there was tremendous <coughs> fruit. So that would be. I, I understand where you're getting at. So. <coughs> So again, let me just wrap it up saying this. Jesus had to be God in order to accomplish our salvation for us. He could be nothing less than God. It would be an incomplete sacrifice. Um, for God to, for Jesus to have lived a sinless life, for Jesus, you could just go through his entire ministry to have the spirit without limit, to, to be able to do all the things and say all the things he did, to be able to walk in the attributes perfectly as God did, to be able to be the perfect representation of God the Father, as Hebrews 1 says, and, and as he says in John 14, if you've seen, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But what man can say that? Even some man who, is, who has been sinless, who has somehow been the perfect man still would not be able to say that he perfectly represents God. He couldn't. And then go on to become that perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Really? Not a chance. No one less than God. Come in the flesh, we'll get into that next week, could ever suffice in being our Savior. Let me close in prayer. Father, I, I just thank you so much that you loved us to the extent that you were willing to give your only begotten son, Jesus. And that his sacrifice on the cross was complete, completely adequate, sufficient. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. Jesus, you are our Savior. You are fully powerful enough by what you've accomplished for us to rescue us from our sins. And I thank you, Jesus, God, that you were willing to limit yourself for those 30-some years with, with this frail human flesh. What a burden. It is inconceivable to think of God willing to be encumbered by this thing called the flesh. And yet, you were willing, you set aside your glory, you and you emptied yourself. These are, we'll never know what that really means because we, we don't know what it's like to be God. But Jesus, thank you that you humbled yourself in becoming man. And you even humbled yourself to the point of dying a death under false accusation. That is love. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, that Jesus, that you loved us. And you love us today that much. For God so loved the world, he gave. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.